Shalom and welcome to Parsha Kitetse. Uh, tonight we will be talking about the subject of taking captive. So let us begin with our opening bracha. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Bakarbanu Mikol Hamim Veinatan Lanu Etorato Baruch Atah Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Adonai, may you bind us to the Lapid Mashiach Yeshua. May you grant us eyes to see. Amen. So this week's Torah portion has a very, very interesting start because it's talking about going out to war. So when you go out to war, first verse here of the Torah portion, literally if you read the Ivrit, it says, Kitetze la milchama al oevecha un tano Adonai. When you take the field against your enemies, and Adonai, your God, delivers them into your hands. So there's this idea already that when you go out to war, you will be successful against your enemies because Hashem will deliver your enemies into your hand. Now, if you go back to the previous Torah portions, you understand that in order to be on the battlefield, you first of all have to meet certain requirements. Um, the Midrash gets you some, brings down the fact that one who is considered to be in the army of God, they have to be a person of uh, reputable character. Like they have to have such a um, high standard. Um, the Midrash Kichisam brings down that these are people who say the Shema, you know, evening and morning, when they retire and when they arise. These are people who ha learn how to take captive all their thoughts. And these are people who are righteous. These are people who uh, aren't caught up into the things that tie us up in this world, you know, um, material possessions, uh, relational, uh, basically relational standards and things like that, you know, so you look at who was dismissed from the battlefield, you know, those who built a house and haven't had a chance to live in it, those who planted a vineyard, haven't had a chance to harvest it, you know, someone who uh, has taken a wife that they've betrothed and they haven't gotten to get married yet, you know, and so, and then just anyone who was just straight up, you know, <laughs> scared for like with better terms. And so you kind of look at those different things and you see that in order for where we're starting in this week's Torah portion, you know, if you don't connect it with the background, it kind of seems weird, you know, because if you're, of such a character, then why, after you go out to war, you know, would there be this thing that you would see the captives? Because verse 11, Devarim chapter 21 is where we're at, by the way. So verse 11 goes into the fact that you'll see a beautiful woman. And if you kind of look at this, uh, it says, Eshet Yefat, like you'll see a beautiful woman. 
And if you look at uh, Mishle uh, 31, you know, the Eshet Kayil Bracha, it says that beauty is fleeting. So, yes, I'm opening up Shomer Blue because this calls for some insight. Because you have this idea of the standard that you live by as a soldier in the army of Hashem, but yet you're caught off guard by this woman who's beautiful. And she's a woman who is from the nation that you're supposed to be eradicating because these nations have chosen, first of all, they haven't chosen Shalom because every, again, every... Uh, battle in every city that is waged war against, you know, by the army of Israel, they're supposed to preach shalom first, you know, and there's this whole thing about that. And it all stems from what Moshe decided to do when Hashem told Moshe to go to war against Sikon and Og, you know, and Moshe was like, no, I'm going to send messengers and now I'm not going to go to war against them. I'm going to give them an opportunity to make shalom, you know. And with making shalom, there's conversion. There's adherence to Torah. There's being subjugated to the plan and the will of God, you know, and things like that. And so anyone basically who was fought by the armies of Israel, they were basically saying that we do not receive your Torah. We do not receive your God. We do not receive the terms of the one who is sent you know like the redeemer basically because the army is led by the redeemer of Israel so you know you look at that was Moshe you look at that was Yehoshua and obviously now and overall it's always been Hashem which is why Mashiach Yeshua is the one who really is the head of the army because, you know, Mashiach and Hashem are one. Yochanan 10.30. So, you kind of look at all these things and it's an outright rejection of basically Hashem Echad. Because Hashem being Echad, you know, we talked about how that is the one body with many members. So, if you're rejecting the Redeemer, or if you're rejecting the Torah, or if you're rejecting Hashem, it's all the same. So that's what the army is all connected to. And so, you know, again, that's the background of all these nations that are being gone against. And so when you're going out to war against these nations that have rejected Hashem overall, now you're seeing that there are women, you know, there as well. And it's just like they're captors now, you know, they're prisoners of war. And it's just like, you want to have mercy upon them as a soldier. You know, you got your hormones and your testosterone and everything all worked up. And it's just like, wow, she's pretty. And it's like, but she's your enemy. Don't engage. You know, aren't you married? And remember all these things. So if you really start getting into that, uh, there's lots of commentary about what the Torah has um, has granted us as far as helping uh, tactics and techniques for this. So, but before we get into all that, let's just stay camped at the beautiful woman real quick. Because remember, this beautiful woman here is not your wife. She's not an Israelite. And she, again, 
She is your enemy. So I don't know why you're stopping and taking time to think that she's pretty. And then verse 11 says that you desire her and you want to take her as a wife. Okay, so the beautiful woman in the Eshek Hayil, it says, uh, Mishle 31.30, Grace is false and, a, and beauty is vain. A woman who fears Adonai, she should be praised. All right, so commentary. Only a God-fearing woman is truly deserving of praise. That's from the Medzudot. Despite all the incomparable virtues of Abraham, Adonai praises him for being God-fearing. Abraham's readiness to make Yitzhak an offering, Bereshit 22.12, Adonai said, Now I know that you're a God-fearing man. That is from Bina Le'itim. Side note, when it's talking about an Eshchayil, commentary is completely going to the righteousness of Abraham as far as how much Hashem fears Abraham same thing with an Eshek Hayil she will have this immaculate level of fear of Hashem that she is worthy to be praised just like Abraham was worthy to be praised because he feared Hashem so there's that but going on it says Mary uh, Mare E, basically, Mary, not Mary, like M-A-R-Y, but Mary, M-E-I-R-I. It's a commentary here. It says, advises that one should choose a wife of virtue and good character. So, if you look at our parsha 2111, it only says she's beautiful and you desire her and she's the captive of war. So, that automatically doesn't line up with wifey material then it says he quotes wise men do not take a wife for her wealth or her beauty those attributes are vain they will leave her but her character flaws will remain so i would like to just submit to the table pun intended that this woman here who's a captive of war the desire and her beauty is only paid attention to and not who she is, where she's from. Does she even love Hashem? Does she even fear Hashem? Because love and fear of Hashem are completely, totally different things. That's why we have to have a unification of fear and love in our service to Hashem. Because one, you know, love of Hashem is like we're willing to uh, self-sacrifice for Him because of that love but if we fear Hashem we forsake our own will for his will you know and so you kind of put those two things together and it's just kind of like you know uh, it's definitely showing that there's a distinction between love and fear and so here you have this woman you don't even know if she does either or either of those things and furthermore in Eshkayu She's a woman who fears Hashem. You know, she's got good character. Then it says, a woman does not earn praise for her charm or beauty because they are God-given. Such praise is not truly praise of her, but of Hashem. So even now, you're giving a concession to this woman is beautiful because Hashem made her that way. You know, so looking at the Eshkayil, her beauty works in tandem with her fear of Hashem. And that's like a, 
you know, that's a positive positive, you know, it's just like two good things working together there. That's legit. But we know that here for this woman who's a captive of war, we only see one thing. So it's just kind of like Hashem made her so beautiful, but she's a part of the nations that we're supposed to wipe out. So not really something that we should be really uh, keen on paying attention to. Then it says, fear of God, however, is not her own choice. Or fear of God is her own choice. Sleek God, that would have been awkward. Fear of God, however, is her own choice. Therefore, if she is lauded for that, then she is being praised. For this attribute is exclusively hers. That's Al-Sheikh. The sages in Sanhedrin 20a, Tractate of Talmud, apply the verse's praise to the Mishnaic generation of Rav Yehuda uh, ben Rabbi Eli in the time when the Roman persecution made the Jewish people destitute, especially the Torah scholars. Nevertheless, so dedicated were they to Torah study that six students would cover themselves with one cloak in order to continue their studies. Homiletically, the Yetzahara gives falsehood the illusion of grace. The Yatahara gives falsehood the illusion of grace. What this makes me think about is the distinction between the grace and the truth of Torah. You know, there is a level of grace where it's definitely unmerited favor. You know, we don't deserve this. And then there's a level of Torah where it's like, this is absolute truth. You know, it's just and, uh, you know, there are these standards that have to be met. And if they're not met, then there are consequences. And so when you think about the grace and truth of Torah, I mean, there's that level of we get what we don't deserve, but we stay inside the bounds. But if you take away the truth aspect of it and just stick with the grace, you know, there's this this opportunity here for falsehood to be illuminated, you know, and it's just kind of like. What's taught today, you know, from the the ministers and the teachers of the word, you know, is this grace and truth, you know, meeting together in the teaching or is this just grace? You know, is this falsehood? Is this deception? Is this taking Hashem out of context? Is this leading us away from the righteous standards of the Torah? You know, so... That's a very, very interesting line of commentary here that the Yetzahara gives falsehood the illusion of grace. So you can see something false. You can see something that's absolutely false, absolutely wrong. You can see that as Torah, the grace aspect of Torah. So we have to be very careful that we're not led by our Yetzahara, but we're led by the Ruach HaKodesh, which is the Yetzir Tov. So then it says a God-fearing woman, Sleeka, let's go back here, it says the Yetzahara gives falsehood the illusion of grace and vanity the illusion of beauty. So false is grace and vain is beauty. So again, just sticking with Devarim 21.11, this woman is only beautiful because there's this urge, there's this desire for her, and it's just kind of like... Everything else is not even paid attention to. And now this is all in vain. 
because this is a fleeting moment and you're in the middle of, you know, you're on a mission, basically. And so this is like the little squirrel. This is a, you know, shining object on the side of the road and you're like supposed to be paying attention and you're swerved over here to this and distracted, you know, and then you're giving, you know, validity to this point, you know, and there was um, I was listening to teaching on the um, the temptation of the Nakash with Hava that that should have never been a thing because Hava should have never started a conversation and open dialogue with the Nakash, you know, and so because of the open line of communication, because of the door being opened, because of the eyes being diverted, the heart being turned, you know, came the opportunity for the greatest downfall of humankind in all of history. So much so that the aspect at the end of chapter 21, where there's this person hung on a tree, uh, talks about the fact that they're hung on a tree. And if you can't find out any prescription of why this person died, then you need to go back to the first tree that caused man to die. You know, and it was like, what does that even mean? Basically saying that, you know, there's so much uh, placed in front of this penalty that, you know, the the person in, that was hung on this tree, first they were a drunkard, first they were, you know, disobedient, they were rebellious, they were wayward, you know, and it was like, this is a child, you know, so there's the idea of the age of accountability, and it's just like, how was this child raised, you know, what caused this, and coming to find out, this is the offspring of you know, the union between a person who let their desires and their feelings get the best of them, their urges, and a woman who was vainly beautiful, who was an enemy, you know. And so Devarim 21, from the beginning of Parashakitetse all the way to the end of chapter 21, is this progression. So Hashem... And his infinite wisdom gave us this prescription of when we go out to war that, you know, if we see this woman, we desire her and we want to take her as a wife. OK, uh, as opposed to telling you completely no and uh, which is already a thing, because obviously the Ten Commandments is says don't commit adultery, <laughs> don't be covetous, don't desire your neighbor's wife. You know, who is my neighbor? That whole thing. So now we see the progression like, OK, so you're going to be against the the first standard. So, OK, go ahead. Take her. You shouldn't do this, but go ahead. And where have we seen this before? You know, Pharaoh says he's not going to let the people go. Hashem was like, I wish you wouldn't do that. But OK first plague please let the people go uh, okay you're not gonna do it I wish you wouldn't do that next plague you know and so on and so forth to the point where the per to the point where Pharaoh he couldn't help himself but to say he's not gonna let the people go because his heart became hardened 
And so if you look here, that when the woman was taken in, it was just like, please don't do this. And it's like, let her hair grow and uh, don't trim her nails. <laughs> you know, let her mourn for her mother and father or family members that you've wiped out because, you know, there's kind of like she belonged to somebody. You know, she was somebody's daughter. She was somebody's sister. She was somebody's possibly wife. And you just completely ran past all those fences and just was like, yeah, she needs to be mine. So it's just kind of like, okay. So if any of that doesn't work, then it's just like, okay. Verse 14, you should no longer want her. You must release her outright. And then it says you must not sell her for money. Since you had your will of her, you must not enslave her. So it's just kind of like, wow. So you've gotten yourself into this <laughs> and you're on the hook for her now. This is your bed. You have to lie in it. Verse 15. If a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, you know, obviously, if you were the one who took this woman captive and you were already married, you're going to be in a two wife situation which we know is not ideal. <laughs> you know, um, just look at the story of Yaakov and what happened with Raquel and Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah. Like, that was just a no-go. Or look at Abraham with, you know, uh, Hagar and with Sarah. That was a no-go, you know. So, you don't want to get yourself into those kinds of situations. One wife is more than enough. But again, the only reason this situation ever occurred was because your lust and your urges and your eyes basically got the best of you. So again, with Adam and Hava, just to kind of finish that story out, that the lust and the eye got the best of us as mankind because the Nechash came speaking to us with words that were rebellious and wayward towards Hashem. And what did he turn us to? He turned us to the one thing Hashem said not to do. And it's just kind of like anything that was not Hashem, that's where, you know, our eyes and our desires and our urges get us. That's what leads us into these horrible situations we should have never been in in the first place. But the beautiful thing is, just like with Adam and Hava, just like with this soldier, just like with all of us, Hashem uses it for the good. Should we be in the category of those who love him? Because Hashem works everything to the good of those who love him. So even our failures, even our distractions, even when our urges and just improper motives and intentions get the best of us. Should we choose to make Shuva? Should we choose to turn return which is shuva to the love of hashem hashem will use that and ultimately what did he do he sent mashiach yeshua to ransom his beloved you know so to repair the curse of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil mashiach yeshua was put to death on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil how did i just call the crucifixion staked the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, I call it that because Mashiach himself, who knew no sin, 
took upon sin and hung him. He was basically, he didn't hang himself, but he allowed himself to be bound to that tree. That would basically take the curse that was upon him and the aspect of being hung on a tree, which is a curse. He would put the curse on and within a curse. And so you can look at how two negatives basically are here and the outcome is a positive that through undergoing this final extermination and eradication of the beginning of death, you know, there's life. And it's just like, this is the beginning of what will ultimately be culminated in the resurrection that Mashiach brings us to. The tree that he was hung on was the beginning of turning us away from death. And ultimately with the return of Mashiach and the resurrection of the dead, the rebuilding of Yerushalayim, the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash, then we will experience the fullness of what was began there. Basically, taking all of our failures, all of our errors, and Hashem just encapsulating that here with this tree that Mashiach is hung on. So, Mashiach and this picture of being crucified becomes the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Because he himself is apart from the sin that he took upon. And then he placed all that on the tree. Because, you know, it says that cursed is anyone who does not uphold all of the Torah. And so, you know, there's this idea of waywardness, rebelliousness, and defiance. Which again, Devarim 21, it's all of that. And then Mashiach is a tree of life. Mashiach is the tree of life because the Torah is the tree of life. Break that down a little bit too. Um, let me give you the reference to uh, cursed is anyone who does not uphold the Torah. All right. Well, first of all, it is from Devarim, but I'm going to go ahead and give you the most common of that verse, which is Galatians 3.10, which says that for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So on the surface, that sounds like if you're a person who's Torah observant, then you're under a curse. But let's really unpack that. It says if you are, first of all, just hit the interlinear button and that changed some things. <laughs> it says, um, as many as indeed of works of law are under a curse. It has been written cursed or has been written indeed cursed everyone who does not continue all things having been written in the book of the law to do them. So in other words, if you're of Torah observance, you're under a curse if you do not uphold the observance of the Torah that you're under. Now, this is really, really interesting because walking in Torah observance, we do fall short. But the beautiful thing about that is Hashem has within our observance the aspect of Teshuvah that through prayer, 
through studying Torah, through reciting brachot, through keeping the Shabbat, through eating kosherut, kosherut, eating kosher basically, and all the different things that are in observance removes you from the curse because one who does not uphold these things you know, you remove that element of teshuva because whenever you say a bracha, whenever you keep Shabbat, whenever you enter into prayer, whenever you do Torah study, these things purify, cleanse you, renew your service to Hashem. Because remember, mitzvot, the word zav means to connect. So what you're doing is connecting to Hashem. And remember, Hashem himself is a mikvah. The Torah itself is a mikvah. It's all life-giving. It's all like, you know, it cleanses, it purifies. And so even if you fall short because you're in observance, you're eventually going to run into one of these things that you observe, one of these commandments, one of these mitzvahs, you know, one of these opportunities that is going to purify you. And so we see here that if Galatians 3.10 is read appropriately, the curse is only in effect if you do not continue what the Torah prescribes. So just want to point that out. Basically, cursed is anyone who is disobedient, you know, to the works of the, I mean, Slika, to the law of God, which is the Torah. So there's that. But that verse itself was derived from... Devarim 27:26, Cursed is he who does not put the words of this law into practice. So there's that. So where I was going with all of that is the beauty of this woman creates some issues just like the Yetahara stirring up within us to get distracted, to get off track and to listen to anything that would draw our hearts away from God. Just um, just taking a moment to absorb in insanity that is going on here because it's just like, wait, so we go from a righteous Zadik of a soldier who gets thrown off by a captive woman who, I mean, it just creates all these issues, you know? And so there's a progression, there's an outflow. And I'm going to go ahead and jump over to Rabbi G-Bomb on this because he puts it so succinctly that I think that would be a good synopsis of what I'm trying to communicate. <laughs> so he says, the Torah speaks against none other than the Yetzahara on Devarim 21.11. Many of the situations we face every day confront us with choices. These include difficult choices between what reason intuition and conscience may be telling us to do and what our more impulsive side is pushing us to do and parashat kitetze the torah provides us with guidance and making the right and good choices when fighting the battles of daily life in the home at work in business and in many other contexts the opening mitzvah of the parasha that of the beautiful captive addresses a fundamental issue facing all, literally facing all, who seek to observe the Torah in the fullest way possible. Okay, so now we're elevating from the Peshat, the simple level 
of what the captive woman is. It's not just, you know, a prescription for men. So, you know, anyone who comes to Torah, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, whether you're a child, you know, all, all of the above. It says that this is a fundamental issue that we all face. I like that because, first of all, I believe that anyone who is following Hashem, and I hope <laughs> for sure that anyone who is following Hashem, you know, we all want to do what Hashem has called us to do. And when we get into times, moments of disobedience, of shortcomings, of failures, it's none other than what the opening verse of this Torah portion is talking about. Because when we go out to war, we're supposed to be already at a, at a level, you know, of being worthy to be in Hashem's army, which we are, because Hashem has made us that way. And that's why we're going to be victorious when we go out to battle. But if in the middle of our victorious battles, we stop, we swerve in a bad way, we get distracted, we divert our eyes, we forget to fight, and we get caught off guard by this captive. We get caught off guard by the Yetzahara. That's what we're talking about right here. So it says that the Torah regulates our interactions with the outside world down to the very food we take into our mouths and the clothes we wear. What, if anything, are we allowed to take from the alien cultures around us? The beautiful captive embodies all that is most alluring and enticing in the alien culture. The Torah tells us, let her hair grow long, her nails grow like claws, which I did the immense elucidation when discussing this with a few other Lepidniks that, you know, you basically have this wildebeest in your house and it was just like, whoa, 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 what's up with the, what's up with the hostility? You know, it was just like, well, I mean, that doesn't seem like it's something that's uh, desirable upon the eye. It's just like, well, I know it ain't desirable, but goodness, do we have to go that far? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so anyway, um, instead of allowing ourselves to jump at surface attractiveness, we must take a little time to discover how quickly this fades and turns ugly. Again, wildebeest. But anyway, um, let's go back to Mishlei 31. It says uh, in the Shomer Blue, again, the commentary here, this is um, the uh, Al Sheik is bringing this down, or Mary Sleeka says, one should choose a wife of virtue and good character. He quotes, do not take a wife for her wealth or her beauty. Those attributes are vain. They will leave her, but her character flaws will remain. So, Again, this captive woman here that has caught our attention, this aspect of anything that's outside of Judaism that's captured our attention while we're out at war. Just like at the moment, this may seem very, very desirable. This may seem inescapable. But do know if you give it time, it becomes very, very ugly. It becomes uh, very uh, stripped and... Um, devoid of what really causes it to be so enticing 
And this is crazy because um, Mayam Loez and some other different commentaries bring down this idea that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil actually would have been permitted to Adam and Hava had they waited to the onset of Shabbat after saying the Kiddush. You know, because the Kiddush is what distinct distinguishes the Shabbat and sets it apart from the rest of the week. So yes, there's candle lighting, and yes, there are the different brachot we sing and the Shalom Aleichem, but it's not until the Kiddush that you really consecrate the day as Shabbat. It's really the anointing moment of this is truly the Shabbat. And what happens right after Kiddush? What do we eat? We eat bread. So between the fruit of the vine, which is the Kiddush, and the hamotzi, which is the bread, there are these opinions that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was either fruit of the vine, like grapes, or it was bread, you know, like challah, which has leaven in it, by the way. And you think about the leaven, the hamets, that thing that puffs up, and how if you eat hamets, you know, before the redemption or during the redemption, namely Pesach, getting free from slavery, sin, and bondage, hametz is, is a no-go. And you don't eat hametz again until after you've been passed over and after you've gone through the Yom Suf. So you got the Passover being the 14th of Nisan and to the 15th of Nisan, and that's like day one. And then at the end of the week, there was the crossing of the Yom Suf, you know, in antiquity. That's what inaugurated the Pesach, you know, that whole thing on the final day of that week, they were crossing over the Yom Suf. So after that point, you know, you can go back to eating bread and, and all Israel says, Amen, at that point, you know, because it's like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to get some comments. You know, it's like I've been eating this unleavened bread all week. But then you go to the fact that on Shavuot, which is the consummation of what was started at Pesach, you now bring leavened loaves and offer them in the Beit HaMikdash. And that's called your first fruit offering. So bread is called first fruit. So again, I'm just tying some parallels and correlations to the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that fruit of that tree being either the fruit of the vine or being hollow. And there's this idea that you don't uh, say the bracha for wine if the bread is uncovered. So you cover the bread first and then you say the bracha. So it's just kind of like, what's up with that? Could it be there's this idea of, you know, partaking of the fruit of the vine, you know, and not intermingling it and mixing it with the desire of the chametz present in the bread mixes the idea of serving Hashem without being uh, unfocused, without being properly subjugated. Interesting to note that the wine is the fruit of the vine, like, you know, the vine to which we're the branches of, the vine being Mashiach Yeshua, and then again, the bread, the chametz that's in the bread, that which puffs us up. So if we're not connected to Mashiach Yeshua and we're 
engage in thing that, things that puff us up, we no longer have this limiting, this governing agent, so to speak. And so if you cover that bread first, partake of the vine, then you can uncover the bread. You go into this aspect of the bread being brought forth from the earth, i.e. Mashiach Yeshua was crucified first, pierced. His blood flowed like the blood of the, the grape, which is the wine. And then he was covered and wrapped in linen, placed in a tomb to which he was resurrected from. And then, you know, the, the challah is wrapped in linen. It's placed in a tomb, like under cover. And then we, after we go from the grape and the vine, the blood, we go into the resurrection element. So we don't mix death and life, or we don't mix the idea that serve Hashem, be connected to Him, and then all of the things that we desire, the things that get into us that, you know, are apart, so to speak, from serving Hashem. So if we do it appropriately, we can connect ourselves to Hashem, fulfill our desires because we're connected to Hashem without being distracted. And so this is the idea that when we embrace the crucifixion of Mashiach, like Yitzhak did when he carried the wood and bound him and allowed himself to be bound as an Akidah, which is what we read every day in our Shakari prayer, so that we remember that we must lay down our lives. We must be living sacrifices. We're doing all that. Only then do we have the opportunity to partake of that which is pleasurable, you know, the the challah and how delicious it is, dipping it in butter and honey, you know, sprinkling or, or dipping it in salt first, obviously, before any of the other stuff. But then afterwards, you know, having the honey and everything. So there's this idea of even our desires are subjugated to Hashem, you know, and this is the beauty of Nidah, family purity. That, you know, a husband and a wife are to live in, you know, uh, marital bliss, but they have to have an interruption, you know, for this need out period. And it's just like even that is so powerful. You know, you uh, harness and restrain your your yourself, your physical desires. And um, when you're eating kosher, I love food. I'm just going to put that out there. And so. The idea that Hashem can help me you know, control my urges, my desires for this thing that I love so much. The, the fact that I can lay my life down in that area, I think is so incredible. And so the question about does Hashem really care what we eat becomes very, very just kind of like, what kind of question is that? Because Hashem has asked me to do something that helps me control myself. And furthermore, what kind of character does it take to eat kosher? Because sometimes you're out and about and ain't nobody gonna know, but Hashem will and you will. And it's just like, you know, uh, where's my sador? It's right here. Connect that thought to this right here because we read this every morning as well. Uh, this is actually right after the Akira. It says, always let a person be God-fearing privately and publicly acknowledge the truth speak the truth within his heart and arise early and proclaim master of all worlds and then it keeps going but now i'm gonna, I'm gonna keep reading because 
This is another thing too, because sometimes people say Jews work for their salvation. Check this out. This is to put everybody on blast that we Jews do not work for our salvation. We work because we have salvation. Not in the merit of our righteousness do we cast our supplications before you, but in the merit of your abundant mercy. What are we? What is our life? What is our kindness? What is our righteousness? Filthy rags. Um, what is our salvation? What is our strength? What is our might? What can we say before you, Adonai, our God and the God of our forefathers? Are not all the heroes like nothing before you, the famous as if they had never existed, the wise as if devoid of wisdom, the perceptive as if devoid of intelligence? For most of their deeds are desolate and the days of their lives are empty before you. The preeminence of man over beast is non-existent for all is vain. It's not going to last. You know, everything of this world is not going to last. Just just know that, you know, everything that we can see, everything that's visible is temporal. It will pass away. But the things that we can't see, those things are forever. If you don't believe me, then believe Shaul, Rabbi Shaul. But Paul said, it's Second um, Corinthians 4.18, says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is unseen, or since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Things we cannot see are the things that will last forever. So what are we looking at? What are we paying attention to? Now, to go with all that, go to 2 Corinthians 10, 5. This is the, but Paul said, throw down gauntlet, I guess. <laughs> um, 10, 5 says, in every arrogance that rises itself, raises itself up against the knowledge of God, we take every thought captive and make it obey Mashiach. Don't take the beautiful woman for captive. <laughs> take yourself. Take the whole thought Take your urges, take your eyesight, take anything that's drawing you away. Take all of your uh, distractions, submit them to the dominion and the authority of the Mashiach, i.e. the Torah. Let's not have to go through all these different prescriptions of like, oh yeah, sure, you desire her, grab her and bring her into your house. Let her hair grow, let her nails grow, give her time to mourn, take her as a wife. It's like, don't, don't even go there, you know, if you have to, I guess, but it doesn't lead to a good place. So anyway, um, if we can just Baruch Hashem and Bezrat Hashem stay there and, and be with Mashiach. And this is the beauty of being Lapid because the level of observance that we're called to in Messiah is beyond the letter of the law. So we don't want to look at the prescriptions of the law, the prescriptions of Torah, and just go there. And it's just like, well, um, it's okay. I can I can say this woman is beautiful, even though she's my enemy, and she doesn't love Hashem, but I can make her love Hashem. I can just do it. She's she's pretty enough. It's got to work. I can make her an Ishkayil, because we can work on her fearing Hashem, and she's already apparently good on the beautiful part. And it's like... <laughs> whoa do not pass go do not collect two hundred dollars like you're going to jail like don't do this <laughs>
you know, and that's awkward for your family. That's awkward for your children, you know. So anyway, it's just we're calling to a higher level in Messiah. And so if we can really strain and press towards that high mark again, more shameless plugs to Rabbi Shaul's teachings. You know, I think we'd be better off. Actually, I know we'd be better off because Mashiach leads us in the way, the truth, and the life. And that's just how we need to roll. So to finish out over here with Rabbi G-Bomb and my whole synopsis here, that it says, instead of allowing ourselves to jump at surface attractiveness, we must take a little time to discover how quickly this fades and turns ugly. The Torah teaches us not to fall for immediate surface appeal, but to consider the longer term consequences and ramifications of the choices and the decisions we make. The beautiful captive may turn into a hated wife who bears a glutton, drunkard son. The Torah sees to the end of the matter. And I was literally talking to another co-worker of mine not to be confused with Yeshayahu or Amira or Naftali or any of those. But uh, this is another guy. Um, and he's been like really cool sharing some insights. But he was talking about how, you know, Hashem is a provider. And that, you know, he already, um, what is this? He, he sees what you need. And he uh, he brings it to like a completion. So and he kind of brought down this idea or this uh, this example, this scenario where, you know, um, he was needing, you know, provision and a person in his family was needing provision. And, you know, he was just like, don't worry, God's going to provide. He's going to make it happen. He knows we need this kind of thing. And so, you know through the series of circumstances, everything falls out and happens like it needs to. And he was just like, see, I told you it was, it was all good. But the other family member was just like freaking out the whole time and was like, I don't know if God's got this, da, 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 da. And so his exhortation was that like, God's going to provide, like it's okay. And so the cool thing about that is that's only one part of the story. Because if you look at what we recite on a Shabbat and uh, the Kabbalat Shabbat, the Lekadodi and all that, we see that Hashem has this thing where it's uh, last indeed, but first in thought, you know, speaking of the Shabbat kind of thing. And then uh, in our morning brachot, we talk about Hashem. Let me see if I can quote it verbatim. Uh, let's see here. I believe it is in the Yigdal Bracha. Exalted be Hashem. Uh, yeah. Check this out. It says, He preceded every being that was created, the first, and nothing precedes his precedence. And then, here it is. Yes. Because I'm looking at it and I didn't see it on the page. And I'm like, I know it's in here. So again, this is the Yigdal Bracha, the morning blessings. And it says, He scrutinizes and knows our hiddenmost secrets. He perceives a matter's outcome at its inception. Okay? 
So again, first of all, he precedes everything that was created. Nothing precedes him. And then at the inception of a matter, he already perceives the outcome. And so not just the fact that you're going through something, you're going through something and Hashem knows what you need. But because you're going through something, Hashem is already taking care of what you need. So that's a big difference there. So, so my coworker was telling me that I was just kind of losing my mind because I was like, oh my gosh, that's legit. That's only half the story though. And I'm like, man, okay. But anyway, so we see here that how Parashaki Tete starts off is just like, I really wish you wouldn't get distracted from the mission that you're on, which is you're going out to war. You're with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who is the first king of Israel, who is the final king of Israel. And, you know, don't get distracted. Stay on track. But if you do, you know, here's my grace at work. But the the boundaries, the consequences that are going to be enacted because you decided to take this distraction and really go to the depths of it and not really heed the fences now you end up with a body on a tree and um, someone is getting cursed and it's just like mm, that's not good so may we stay on track i love this by the way um i wasn't going to read more of rabbi g bomb but i just saw this line and this is one of the ultimate lines of his commentary for this week that i really just loved it says one bad choice can lead to a lot of evil and suffering on the other hand a single good choice, even over something tiny, can lead to amazing goodness in this world and in the next world. What could be more significant than walking on a road somewhere and happening to find a bird's nest with a mother and eggs or fledglings? So what does that have to do with anything? Well, in this week's tour portion, there's this idea brought or it's not an idea it's a mitzvah <laughs> that's brought down that says if you see this nest you must send away the mother bird before taking the eggs so rabbi g bomb says this costs you nothing and it guarantees long life in this world and the next um so it's just like that escalated quickly well first of all the bird that's mentioned there is the poor and the poor has the same numerical value in gematria as yeshua and so, why is that even relevant? Well, remember this one time when Yeshua says in Matthew 23, 37, Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I would have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you would not. Okay? So I'm now in Benny B. So I went from Rabbi G-Bomb to Benny B. Get you some. Says Rabbi Nachman comments, the chicks and the eggs represent the souls that are weak and require nurturing and the protection of the mother bird. The mother bird, i.e. the Zodic. Rabbi Nachman's Torah, volume 3, uh, page 310 is the source on that. And then... Uh, he goes into quoting Tree of Souls. So, um, it's a little Baal Shem Tov action. Talks about him praying with his Hasidim. And that, um, let me just read this. 
It's kind of long, but I think it's uh, worth the time. So it says, The Baal Shem Tov was once praying with his Hasidim. That day he prayed with great concentration, not only word by word, but letter by letter. That's, that's intense. So that the others finished long before he did. At first, they waited for him, but before long, they lost patience and one by one they left. Later, the Baal Shem Tov came to them and said, While I was praying, I ascended the ladder of your prayers all the way into Ghani Den, paradise. As I ascended, I heard a song of indescribable beauty. As I, or at last, I reached the palace of the Messiah in the highest heavens, known as the bird's nest. The Messiah was standing by his window, peering out at a tree of great beauty. I followed his gaze and saw that his eyes were fixed on a golden dove whose nest was in the top branches of that tree. That is when I realized the song pervading all of paradise was coming from that golden dove, coming from the Mashiach, because remember the, the bird of the bird's nest, the mother bird, Sazadik, that's Mashiach. It says, and I understood that the Mashiach could not bear to be without that dove and its song for as much as a moment. Then it occurred that if I could capture the dove and bring it back into this world, the Messiah would be sure to follow. So I ascended higher until I was within arm's reach of the golden dove. Just before I reached for it, the ladder of prayers collapsed. That's from Tree of Souls, and that's page 490. It says, The redemption is dependent upon Israel if they hear his voice. The book of Tomer Devora, written by the Ramak, says, Like a bird who wanders from her nest, the bird referring to the Shekinah. Okay, so the bird was the Zadik. Then we found out the bird was Mashiach. And now we're saying the bird is the Shekinah. Well, which one is it? The answer is Ken which happens to be the word for nest. Ken is the word for yes, but Ken is also the word for nest. Two different spellings, but homiletically speaking, they are related. Ken uh, for the bird's nest is kaf, which has the numerical value of 20, noon. So kaf noon is the nest and Ken is kuf noon. So between kaf noon and kuf noon, you have yes and you have nest. Anyway, keeping going here, because it says Ken Ish Nedad, um, so is a man, basically. That's what that phrase related to. But anyway, um, Ken and Ken, nest, yes. Okay. Like a bird who wanders from her nest, which is Kufnun, and then it says referring to the Shekinah, so is a man which they use ken, ish, so is a man. So, so and yes are actually the same word, be'ivrit. So, kafnun is that one. So, I just wanted to make sure, I'll keep repeating that because I want to make it distinguish that kufnun is nest, kafnun is yes or so, apparently. All right, Burgershim. That would have been very terrible to have that forever recorded as me saying the way to spell yes is kufnun which is actually the way to spell nest. Thinking out loud, stick to what I'm reading, I know. So is a man referring to Hashem? 
I thought Hashem is not a man. Apparently, the Ramak just like roundhouse kicked that to the face because <laughs> he just completely said, Ken Ishnadod, uh, so is a man who wanders from his place, Mishle 27.8. And he says, so is a man referring to Hashem. So we got the like a bird who wanders from her nest. That's the Shekinah, that's Mashiach, that's the Zadik. So is a man, which is Hashem, who wanders from his place. So Hashem, wandering from his place, is correlated to Mashiach, or the Shekinah, who wanders from her nest. Okay. He, Hashem, waits for her, the Shekinah, and swears that he will not return to his place until he returns her to her place. That's going to be Zohar Kitetse 278a. It says, thus, thus he too is ill because of our transgressions, crushed willingly because of our iniquities. The healing of both is in our hands. Tomer Devora, chapter 5, page 54. That's just uncalled for. So now Hashem is crushed for our iniquities. He's ill because of our transgressions. And the Zadik and the Shekinah Mashiach won't be restored to her nest until Hashem goes back to his palace. So Hashem won't go back to his palace until the bird is restored to her nest. Which, by the way, don't remember where I read this, but I was looking at commentary about the Beit HaMikdash being called a nest. And we were looking at this idea of birds have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And so it was just kind of like putting that all together now with what the source is from the Ramak being so Ramaki, which Ramak is spear, by the way, in Hebrew. So like he's spearing it very violently. Um, oh, my gosh. Need a minute here. The nest of the Beit HaMikdash. The Beit HaMikdash is destroyed. So the bird has been sent away from the nest. The Shekinah departed from the temple before it was destroyed. So just like in this week's Torah portion, sending away the mother bird so that you can take the eggs. If you are a person who does that, Rabbi Jibam brings down this beautiful, just deductive reasoning, insight, practical, that a person who is so compassionate and willing to send away the bird so that her young, she doesn't have to witness her young being taken. If if that's the compassion that a person has for this animal, this bird, i.e., I'm just adding in a little extra elucidation here, his eye being on the sparrow, basically. If you're willing to have this kind of treatment to a bird, how much more so to a human? You know, so anyway, you put that together with what we're talking about here. Mashiach knew the temple was going to be destroyed and that he would have no nest to rest in he would have no young there to nourish and watch grow and we're currently in exile we're separated and you know we got to get the nest back the birds got to come back you know and all this kind of stuff and so the beauty is is that if we do what this mitzvah in the torah is for this week about sending away the mother bird we're telling hashem we're ready for the nest to be rebuilt ready for the bird to come back in the nest, ready for new children to be born. Because, you know, when we experience the resurrection, that we're going to be basically the fullness and the epitome of being born again. 
So right now, spiritually, we're born again. But at the resurrection, we're going to be physically born again. So when you look at all these things being put together, you know, it's absolutely just incredible that Hashem would give us this little mitzvah to really show us this really big picture that we're ready to stop letting our iniquities uh, crush Hashem. We're ready to stop letting our transgressions make Hashem ill. We're ready for Mashiach to return. So may it be so that we merit to see him return speedily and soon in our days. Amen. All right. So that went nowhere near where I intended it to go. But um, if I can just be indulged in sharing some very, very disconnected, but very, very violent insights uh, from sources, I got the opportunity to speak with believers in uh, this wonderful city called Salina and um, hoping that there will be a congregation of Lapid that will be built there which would be really really cool um just as an outflow of sar shalom because you know we need more sar shaloms i'm just 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 saying we do we just need them you know we need more rabbi griffins we need more sar shaloms and we need more lapide we need mashiach basically is what i'm saying <laughs> so rabbi griffin if you can go ahead and duplicate yourself like 50 billion times and uh, as well as Sar Shalom, that would be greatly appreciated. So I'm submitting that to the Beit Dean as something that I would desire to see. And um, yeah, anyway. So anyway, so as I was sharing with this group of people, um, there was this idea that I was bringing down about the Besora Hageula, the Besorat Hageula, which is the good news of redemption, i.e. the gospel. Because it's all encapsulated in the Exodus. You know, the gospel is the Exodus. Basically, it's just, I mean, if you need to know what the good news is, the good news is you've been redeemed by Hashem from slavery, sin, bondage, and death, brought into newness of life and freedom. It's for freedom that Hashem set us free. I mean, Shaul writes about that too, I'm aware. But if you really look at the words Basora and Geula, you get an even more crazy, beautiful picture. Basora is based off the word Basar, which is flesh. And then you got Geula, which is based off the word Gaal, which is Redeemer. So you have the Basora or the Basar Gaal, the flesh Redeemer. That's what the gospel is. That's why Matthew through Yochanan, Matityahu, Mark, Luke, which I'm going to call Lukote, and uh, Yochanan, you know, these synoptic gospels show us the flesh redeemer. So the thing is, is that is nothing new. So I don't know why it's called New Testament. Well, I do know why it's called New Testament. It's because a gentleman by the name of Marcion decided to say, there's two different gods. There's a God who is angry and wrathful. Let's put him in the Old Testament. So that's Genesis through Malachi. So anything in that section, that's old. We want to get away from that. That's wrath. That's vengeance. God, I don't want that God. Okay, that's where Old Testament comes from. 
New Testament comes from, oh, isn't God so nice now? God doesn't really care what we do. God doesn't really want us to do any of the things that made him angry in the first place. So why don't we just like do something completely different? Ends up being a violation of the things that made God angry in the first place. But nobody ever talks about that. I don't know why. But anyway, so now you have this New Testament. You have this beautiful God who sent his son, took away wrath, took away anger, took away the law, took away the Torah, took away righteousness and gave us righteousness. Now, if you are along with me and think that absolutely makes no sense, then Baruch Hashem. If not, see Ezekiel immediately. But either way, New Testament brings on this connotation of disconnecting from the Torah and disconnecting from upholding the righteous standards that God gave us in the first place. And so when you look at the Gospels, when you look at the flesh redeemer, okay, if he is the redeemer and if he is the flesh, what is he the flesh of and what is he redeeming us from? That's the bigger picture. He is the flesh of the Torah. He's redeeming us from breaking the Torah because the Torah was broken when the tablets were shattered. Okay, this is the whole Parsha Kitisa drop right here. But then the Redeemer is Parsha Yitro, you know, Shemot 19. Uh, when you really look at what's going on in Shemot 19, Hashem is healing the sick. He's giving sight to the blind. He's raising the dead because as he was speaking, the people were being resurrected, you know, because they died with every word that came out of his mouth. And so remember that you have to die in order to live. And so you think about that, the implication of hearing the voice of Hashem, it immediately causes you to die, but to be resurrected anew into life. So you have this concept of life from death you know Mashiach says that you must lose your life for my sake in order to truly find it you know i.e. at the word of God you know so anyway I was breaking all this down the flesh redeemer God is already showing up and this happened before you know so what Mashiach is doing you know in Matthew through Yochanan like this was done already you know at Mount Sinai this was done already with Moshe going into Egypt and bringing the people out, you know, so everything should have been done and taken care of at the mountain in the wilderness. But for some reason, the one commandment God actually spoke from his mouth or the, one of the two commandments God actually spoke from his mouth. I you, sh you shall have no other gods before me. That's the one commandment that we broke, which sounds really familiar because Hashem was like, don't eat from that tree. What do we do? That's the one tree we ate from. The one commandment he spoke vocally to us is the one we broke. So it's kind of like, wow. And I remember growing up in my household, it was like, now, I want you to behave. We're going into this place. And if you act a fool, then you're going to be in trouble when we get home. Sure enough. It's like, okay, I, I got it. I understand. You know, mom, dad, we're good. You know, I won't act a fool. I'm great. I'm a kid. I'm going to listen to you. I'm obedient. What do we do? We go into the place. We act a fool. And what, what happens? We get in trouble when we get home. 
So it's just kind of like, wow, this picture is just so familiar. She's like, you heard the voice and you decided to go against it anyway. It's just like, wow. So anyway, furthermore, proof of why Mashiach was crucified on a stake because we heard his voice, but we didn't want to do anything about it. And so Hashem was like, all right, well, I'm going to break the tablets again. And that's the body of Mashiach, which is broken for you, which is the matzah. So if we're eating matzah, we're consuming tablets. We're consuming the flesh redeemer. That's why Mashiach says, this is my flesh is my body which is broken for you which is the Torah which was broken for you and we know that if the tablets were not broken when Moshe showed up to the camp the people would have been in a perpetual state of death because they would have been dancing around the calf and here comes the Torah which sealed the redemption and it's like now I've redeemed a bunch of sinners a bunch of wayward people who have turned aside from the path, i.e. they are a soldier that went out to war and they got caught up with this attractive woman. So now all that's going to happen is death. So it's a good thing that Moshe didn't show up to the camp. He at the foot of the mountain, which is, by the way, a place where no one was supposed to cross the threshold of. That's where he broke the tablets. Because remember, Hashem said, don't touch the mountain. Don't let your animals gaze near the mountains. Okay, near this mountain. And so at that boundary where no one was allowed to cross but Moshe, which again, only Moshe could cross that boundary. So if that's true for Moshe, how much more so for Mashiach as far as being able to cross boundaries that no one else can cross, being able to enter into the presence of Hashem and come down, you know, and truly know the father and the one who sent him. Like, what is that? (laughs) You know? Those things only pertain to Moshe and Yeshua. So the letter Mem becomes this whole new thing now because the Mem and the, the open Mem and the closed Mem, open Mem represents Moshe, the closed Mem represents Mashiach. This is the wisdom of the Hebrew alphabet or Aleph Bet. You know, you can read that source and it talks about this with the Mem. And so you have this 40, which is, you know, we're in the 40 days of Teshuva, you know. Moshe begins with a mem. Mashiach begins with a mem. What happened? There was 40 days on the mountain with Hashem. Mashiach in the wilderness for 40 days, feasting on Hashem. So anyway, all of that background led to what I was having a discussion with this group of people in Salina. And I, I came across like all these different things about bread and water. And so here's what I would like to share because I did not get to share this with them. I'm going to share it now. So first, I'm going to start in Mishlei 9. And then Mishlei 9 says, start here. Yeah, Mishlei 9.5. Okay, Proverbs 9.5. Give wisdom to a wise man and he will become wiser. Uh, and then make known wisdom to the righteous and he will add to his learning. What does that have to do with bread? I'm glad you asked. Come partake of my food. Sleek eye. I read verse 9. I should have read verse 5. Wow. 9-5. Let's, let's try this again. Hey, everybody. How you doing today? This is Matt Shomerman here with some interpretations of verse 5 in chapter 9. It says this. Come partake of my food and drink of the wine which I have mixed. Commentary from the Medzudot. If... You do not have food. Come here and enjoy my bread and wine 
In other words, the Torah's wisdom is delightful. It enlightens its students. All who desire should come and study the Torah. Even if one lacks sense, the Torah will provide it to him. Here's the Radak. The Torah in a way that is pleasant to the mind and heart as wine is to the palate. The Ibn Nachmiat. And it says, just as the world cannot exist without bread, it cannot exist without Torah. Chofetz Chaim expounds on bread as a metaphor for Torah. Bread provides sustenance for one's body, and Torah provides sustenance for the soul. Mashiach says, man shall not live off bread alone, but off every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father. Luke 4.4, Matthew 4.4. If you look at that, the bread alone, that's physical bread. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father, that's spiritual bread. That's the Torah. Torah is both. It's physical and spiritual bread. This is how Moshe and Mashiach were sustained during their 40-day fast. They were eating the true bread, which is the sustenance for the soul. So anyway, uh, therefore a person's... Okay, stop. This is why the first temptation by the Nechash was about food. Because in the garden, the first temptation about the Nakash was about food. Because he said, hey, why don't you eat from this tree? And it's like, we're not supposed to eat that. For Mashiach, it was, hey, turn these stones into bread. I know you can do it. You're the Mashiach. It's like, sorry, I'm already full because I choose to eat the manna and I don't want anything else. Because last time people ate food other than manna, it led to improper relations with a bunch of Moabites and Midianites and a plague broke out and Pincus had to spear somebody. So I want to not have that happen again and I'm here to correct all that. So no thank you. It's the Amet elucidation behind the simple no and man shall live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father. My elucidation on that. But anyway, so it says, therefore a person's attitude towards Torah study should parallel his attitude towards food. This is why kashrut is so legit. Because if you're willing to pay attention to what you put in your mouth, you'll be willing to pay attention. You're supposed to be anyway. Willing to pay attention to what comes out of your mouth. Because if you're putting in Torah, Torah is going to come out. If you're putting in kosher, kosher should be coming out. If there's a disconnect there, see his Aiken immediately. Consult the 40 days of teshuva and make appropriate corrections and adjustments. Amen. Hashem, help us during these 40 days. Oh my gosh, help us to go from death to life, to go to newness of life, to be truly transformed, renew our essence, or transform our essence. Grant us a new essence in Mashiach Yeshua. Clothe us in the Messiah Yeshua. All right, back to our scheduled cast. Okay, so... If we treat our Torah study like we treat our food, Chafetz Chaim is talking. It says he makes sure to eat at least once a day. Similarly, he must study Torah every day. Should someone fast for a day, he will hasten to eat as soon as possible. Similarly, if he missed the day of Torah study, he should compensate it immediately to maintain his spiritual strength. Someone who fasts for a long time does not feel hunger only general weakness. The same applies with the spiritual. If one abstains from Torah study for a long time, he will lose his innate yearning for spirituality, and it will be very difficult for him to regain it. The enjoyment of bread and wine is not compatible with devotion to the Torah. To the contrary, if one enjoys 
the permitted pleasures of this world in order to make it easier for him to observe the commandments, that too is service to Hashem. The Torah does not demand asceticism. That's from the Sidero, Siduro Shel Shabbat. The Shabbat Sidur. Siduro. Sounds out of Spanish almost. But anyway, uh, I love that last point because it says the enjoyment of bread and wine is not compatible with the devotion of Torah. However, you can use bread and wine, especially on the Shabbat, to make our observance easier. And when we do that, like because we're rejoicing in the day of Shabbat, physical food, physical drink, that actually becomes to Hashem. So this is eating and drinking to the glory of Hashem. Uh, what, again, that's a shameless Paul said. Let's see, where is that at? There it is. Uh, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Man, Shoal is so Jewish. Like, I don't know where this comes from that he is not Jewish. Oh, probably because of this section. Uh, where does it start from? How about 25? Same chapter, 1 Corinthians 10.25. Okay, Hashem, here we go. Jumping into a very controversial passage. May you illuminate this whole thing with the fire of the lapid, the torch. Your word's a lamp unto my path, or your word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. I'm sitting here with the Midrash Tehillim open. I should know this. <laughs> your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's reason why I guess I didn't know that was verbatim was because it's Tehillim 119.105. Good thing I got Sephiroth Roke here. It just wasn't open yet. Commentary from the Mizuto. Should have known. Oh, and some Rashi. Mizuto first and then Rashi. So Mizuto says, a lamp at night. Oh, Look at this, midnight tour study, huh? A lamp at night protects a person from stumbling in the darkness. So does God's word protect David. So does God's word protect David from sinning. There's that. That's Mizudot, Rashi. Alternatively, when David would seek to render halakhic rulings, he would refer to the Torah, and it would keep him away from the forbidden, like a lamp that saves a person from pitfalls. This is a psalm for the exile says that, as we have seen, David's prayers foreshadow the prayers of the Jewish people in exile. Seriously. David's prayers foreshadow the prayers of the Jewish people in exile. It's uncalled for. Sephorno interprets such or much of this psalm in this vein, especially from the verses that began with the letter Kaf, verse 81 and forwards, or and so on. It says he interprets the present verse as follows, your word, the stories of Torah, about how our patriarchs inter interacted with their contemporaries, is a lamp unto my feet, which are these stories teach the Jewish people in exile how to interact politically with the nations. Your word is a light unto my path, teaching us to observe your mitzvot and how to pray to you. Street lamps, this is a Hasidic thought from the Rebbe. The mitzvot are God's word. Okay, the mitzvot are God's word. So when 
when God's word becomes flesh, the mitzvah become flesh, Basora, the gospel. Okay, anyway, um, I'm just saying the gospel is the commandments. Then the commandments redeem us from a life of bondage because we start walking in freedom and we're sanctified. That's why we say Asher Kitshanu, who sanctifies us, Be Mitzvotav, by his mitzvahs. So there's that. Besorah Hageula, the good news of redemption, the gospel is summed up in the bracha we recite for each mitzvah, which is Asher Kitshanu Be Mitzvotav who sanctifies us, sets apart by his commandments. Okay, just as a person's words tell us something about him or her, so do the mitzvot tell us about Hashem. Oh, great. So now the, the mitzvot are preaching to us. Wow. Because they're telling us about who Hashem is. <sighs> At first, your word is a lamp. The mitzvot guide me personally, as a lamp guides an individual Eventually, the mitzvot become a light to my path. They illuminate my environment. Mitzvot illuminate my personal life and ultimately the world I inhabit. That's from the Rebbe. And this is why us walking in the mitzvot, hastening the coming of Mashiach is a thing. Because what we're doing now is bringing Mashiach. Anyway, that's my introduction to 1 Corinthians 10.25 through um, verse 31. Might as well just read the whole chapter to the end. So I'll just go 25 to the end. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. Alright? So, in Corinth, what kind of meat market they got going on? I don't know. And they probably don't have hectured meat. Alright? So, Keep that in mind. That is definitely considerable evidence. So Shaul is writing to these people about eating meat that could possibly be unhectured. I'll give you that. But let's keep going. Verse 26. For the earth and everything in it belong to Hashem. He quotes Tehillim there. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, Eat whatever is put in front of you without raising questions of conscience. <coughs> Alright, so we got two things now. So you go into a questionable store. In Corinth, a lot of the meat was used for temple service of like idolatrous worship. And now, <coughs> he's saying if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put in front of you without raising questions of conscience. It's like, oh my goodness. An unbeliever who invites this Jewish person to their home. Now I submit to you that this person hopefully is a respectable person. And hopefully you're in a, a respectable person. Because if this person knows that you're Jewish and they respect it truly, they're not going to put anything unkosher on purpose in front of you. And even if they did, you would not partake of it. You could say, no, thank you. I'll take salad. Just saying, that's, that's, a, that's something you can do. Just like the person who sees the captive woman, who's beautiful, he doesn't have to take her. He can just say, no, thank you. Yes, I just tied 1 Corinthians 10, 27 
to Devarim 21, 11, and 12. But anyway, it says, but if someone says to you, but if someone says to you, but, okay, so transition from those two previous thoughts and come to this. This meat was offered as a sacrifice. Then don't eat it. There you go. So uh, the pivotal point here is that if it's not talked about, which, again, you don't want to embarrass people. There's that thing. So chances are, you know, you don't want to get yourself into those weird conundrums of, hey, just need to ask, is this meat, you know, uh, leftovers from your temple service? Like, was this tainted with idolatry, polluted with idolatry? Because I'm supposed to be refraining from that. Okay, not only is that like an awkward little statement you have to make, but it makes the other person who's serving you feel like, oh, what am I not good enough? Why did you even come here in the first place? You think I'm going to serve you this? You know, like you questioning my character. You're embarrassing me. I'm trying to be hospitable. I'm trying to be nice to you. I just had some questions about Judaism and you just threw it in my face. So anyway, it says then don't eat it out of consideration for a person who is who pointed it out and also for conscience's sake. If the person says to you, this meat was offered for a sacrifice, don't eat it. Out of consideration for the person who pointed it out and for conscience's sake, because you know you aren't supposed to do that. And now you can witness to this person by not partaking of it. Because they'll be like, oh, why are you not going to eat it? Well, you just told me this was offered as a sacrifice. And I only eat meat that's offered as a sacrifice to a shim. You know, that's what kosher meat is, by the way. It's kosherly slaughtered. Even though it's not offered on the altar of a shim, it's literally done in a way that Hashem prescribed. So it's treated as if it is sacrificed to a shim because it's done appropriately like a mitzvah. And now you're going to partake of something that is uh, the result of a mitzvah. So then he says in verse 29, However, I don't mean your conscience, but that of the other person. So now you're pointing it out as a witness that you're not supposed to eat this. And then you're helping the conscience of the other person because it's like, well, if they're not going to eat it and then I was going to serve it to them and they were willing to be like, no, thank you. What's going on here? You know, you're waking them up at this point with their thoughts. So then it says, you say, why should my freedom be determined by someone else's conscience? Shaul is like, okay, so my freedom is now limited to this other person, like in their thinking. It says, why is that a thing? Well, verse 30, if I participate with thankfulness, why am I criticized over something for which I myself bless God? If I participate with thankfulness, why am I criticized over something for which I myself bless God? So you have this bracha that you say, which is expressing your gratitude. But you can't say a bracha over something and have gratitude for something that Hashem has forbidden. That would be like saying, Blessed you, Adonai, God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commitment and has allowed me to rob this house. Kasve shalom, oy boy, that is inappropriate on so many levels. Same thing with this unkosher food. If you're going to say a bracha over it and be thankful, that's not good, you know. So here's what's being pointed out. So, verse 31, well, whatever you do, whether it's eating or drinking or anything else, do it all so as to bring glory to God. 
do not be an obstacle to anyone, not to Jews, not to Gentiles, not to God's believing community. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not looking out for my own interests, but for the interests of the many so that they may be saved. So there you go. So uh, this reminds me of don't let your freedom be used as a pretext for sin. Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to go from Shaul. Finally, we got some Kepha up in here. First Kepha 2.16. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. So if you look at that, even in our freedom, we're using it as a pretext for divine service. And again, divine service here is when you can use food, like your food and drink, in devotion to Torah. So if you look at that 1 Corinthians 10 passage that we were just discussing, you can line all of your observance of how you're partaking of this and how you're refraining from certain things as bringing glory to Hashem. Respect the hospitality that's being presented to you and Bezrat Hashem, there's respect on both ways. If you can't eat the meat because it was polluted by idols, then you know, what else do they have that's not polluted by idols? And uh, both ways, you'll be able to be respectful to the person who's showing hospitality at the same time, being a light, you know, to somebody's path by showing them a mitzvah, by waking up their conscience, waking up their thinking. All right, Bruce So that's Mishlei 9 5. Okay, Torah is bread and wine. Um, Mishlei 3 Slika. Uh, let's go with 316. That's interesting. Or in verse 18, I want to get to verse 18. So here we go, 16 through 18 it is. Uh, 3.16 says, Length of days at its right, at its left, wealth and honor. Mezudot. Uh, through Torah, a person will attain long life, wealth and honor. Okay, there's your eternal life. Then it says, Torah protects one from sin and therefore assures him eternal life in the alum Haba. That's the Radak. The right side refers to those who study Torah for the sake of Hashemayim. The left side refers to those who study the Torah for lesser motives, such as wealth or honor. They too will be blessed. That's the Vilna Gaon. So, Gaon, get you some. Bezrat Hashem, we study the Torah from the right side, though. Because wealth and honor, though it's great, they are fleeting. Because, again, they won't last... <laughs> Because they're things of this world. But the riches at Hashem's right hand are pleasures forevermore. So there's that. But then it says in Shem Mishamuel, the left represents the less, the less desirable. The left represents the less desirable. Wealth and honor are not desirable in themselves. They are important only as a means to make it easier for people to study. Torah and observe or Slika make it easier for people to study Torah and observe the mitzvot and I'll tell you boy that would be great just having 
so much money you can buy two Talmuds because there's two Mashiachs and being able to you know have a set of tefillin for the weekday you know like first day through third day and then tefillin for third day through sixth day you know like that would be great not that we need two sets of tefillin but you know there are two Mashiachs and if you're going to be balling like that you might as well have a backup set so in case you're davening with a minion and someone doesn't have a set of tefillin you're like oh i just so happen to carry around two sets of tefillin why don't you use this just a thought for all the rich people out there okay keeping going we're going to go to verse 19 by the way because i just saw something that was amazing all right so verse 17 its ways are pleasantness again this is mishlay chapter 3 we're on verse 17 the ways of torah are pleasant they do not impose difficult burdens upon people. On the contrary, the mitzvot are beneficial, bringing both physical and spiritual health and well-being. That's the raw bog. Then it says the ways of Torah teach people neither overindulge in pleasure nor to suffer unnecessarily. So the ways of Torah teach people neither to overindulge in pleasure nor to suffer unnecessarily. The middle ground. It's the name of the game. That's the Ibn Nakmiyat. Okay? I'm not going to call this guy uh, Knock Me Out. Okay? That's what I'm going to call him. Because every time he drops something, you're just like, really? Psh, what just happened? You know? Okay, anyway. Uh, verse 18. It is a tree of life to those who grasp it. See, the Torah is only a tree of life if you grab a hold of it. If not, you look at it, you're like, that's the tree of death. Surely that can't be what God wants for us. And it's like, no, just just grab it. Just promise. You know, and it's like, uh, my gosh, this is terrible. You know, the whole thing when you're a kid, it was like, hey, pull my finger. And it's like, I'm not going to pull your finger. And they're like, no, no, just do it. And they do it. And it's like this very just terrible joke. And it stinks kind of thing. So anyway, um, it is not like that with the Torah. Truly, grab a hold of the Torah. I promise everything will be fine. It may seem like everything's not fine because the beginning of Torah is death. I mean, you're going to lose friends, probably going to lose family. You're definitely going to lose your church if you're a Christian. And um, that's right to shame you won't because, you know, one of the coolest things, especially for the alum, Hamba, return of Mashiach type time, is when churches become synagogues, pastors, you can do this. You can take your church and turn them into a synagogue, get the conversion going. I mean, that's what happened in Acts chapter 2, except these people weren't Christians when they started. They were Jews, so it's like a reverse picture of that because, you know, these Jews, they had to get mass conversions, you know, and it's just like, but we're already Jewish. It's like, great, convert. It's just like, okay, but we're Christians. Great, convert. We love Mashiach. Great, convert. <laughs> The Jews were saying the same thing. We love Torah. And it's like, great, convert. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, yeah, so it's not going to look good at the beginning. But trust me, we talked about the two paths. There's one initially covered in thorns and thistles. But it begins to be a straight, awesome, smooth path. There's one that's really smooth at the beginning. And then it turns into thorns and thistles. And so just like that's your choice of life and death. That's Parsha A, by the way. Anyway, uh, it says this verse encourages people to study Torah. 
Everyone wants to live long. Many people want earthly success. Torah study provides both. Radak. I'll tell you, it may not seem like that's true, but it is. I'm a living testimony and I will testify and shame you know who that, um, you know, by telling the truth. There's the whole thing. Tell the truth and shame, you know. But anyway, um, not tell the truth in shame. But it does feel shameful sometimes when you have to tell the truth because it's just like, I'm putting myself out here. It's like, great, but you're bringing light where there's currently darkness. So, Brukashim. But, uh, you know, not making all the money in the world, but having enough to survive, having enough to purchase sources that are needed, having enough to celebrate Yom Tov, having enough to have food on the table. You know, Torah, you know, is definitely keeping everything here like there's earthly you know sustenance and you know there's a fair level of success i would say you know in my story i mean i'm pretty sure there's levels of that with other people but you know i'm making podcasts and this is awesome um i I mean i'm learning a lot i'm learning more actually than you're probably learning so you know i challenge you it's a competition. No, I'm just kidding. It's not a competition. But seriously, this is amazing. So, and then we all have the Alam Haba to look forward to. So there's that. Uh, then it says, just as a tree produces fruit year after year, so Torah study constantly enriches its students. To the degrees a person recognizes that his meaningful existence depends on how tightly he grasps the Torah it will be a tree of life for him. Chidushe ha ra'im. All right, so I'm going to skip this next one because it talks about the supporters are trustworthy, and that's legit, that's cool. But this right here, verse 19. Hashem founded the earth with wisdom. He established the heaven. He establishes the heavens with understanding. The Torah was the blueprint, blueprint of creation. Hashem looked into the Torah and created the world. Bereshit Rabbah 1-2. Sages teach there is nothing without its place. A Pirkei Avot 4-3. This means that everything in existence has a place in the Torah. We must understand everything in that perspective or in the perspective of Torah. That's from the Safat Emet. And I didn't quote that source because of the name of Met, but, you know, it goes with it, so get you some of that. Hashem created the cosmos in such a way that the objective person can observe the heavens and realize that they could have been created only with divine understanding. Rabbi Mendel of Kotzok. Kotzkok. There we go. Goodness. Kotsk. Rabbi Mendel of Kotsk crazy syllables all right anyway what is this the cleaving of the depths alludes to the earth from which adam's body was created the showering of the dew from the heavens allude to the heavenly soul that transformed the physical adam into a complete human being radak what is wrong with you that's his that's his commentary on verse 20 okay enough of that little footnote here sticky note that i put in as a bookmark uh the torah is aleph to it is all the hebrew right so it's et 
which et is the Shekinah, it's the Aleph and the Tav, that's Mashiach, so Torah is Mashiach, and it says the Eshes Kayil is written from Aleph to Tav, so Mishle 3.15 corresponds to Mishle 31.10, 3.15 says it is more precious than pearls, because the Eshes Kayil is more precious than pearls. Alright, I'm going to read the commentary. Verse 15 of chapter 3. The Chafetz Chaim explains with a parable, The larger a pearl, the greater its value. A very large pearl may be worth 10 or 20 times more than a pearl half its size. The same principle applies to the study of Torah. If a person toils and masters one chapter of Torah and his friend toils longer and masters two chapters, the latter's achievement is incomparably greater. Should someone exert a great effort and master three chapters, his level was far surpass those of the others. The sages in Horayot 13a interpret this passage homiletically. The word mifninim refers to the innermost chamber of the Beit HaMikdash, Thus, the merit of a Torah scholar, even if he is of illegitimate birth, i.e. he's a mamzer, a Gentile, says he is greater than that of an unlearned Kohen Gadol who enters the inner chamber on Yom Kippur. Yeah, that just happened. Then it says, all your desires cannot compare to it. Anything you desire is not equal to the value of wisdom, which is Torah. That's Rashi. There's that. There's my sticky notes on that. A little note here in the Midrash. Get you some of Tehillim. Bread. Uh, Tehillim 40 verse 9. And your Torah is in my innards. I.e. in my heart. That's the Radak and Mezudot. Or even what I may eat conforms to the instructions of your Torah. That's Rashi. Tankuma Re'e 12. What I eat confirms to your Torah. It conforms to your Torah. So that's why Mashiach would say, man does not live off bread alone, but off every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father, because what I eat comes from his mouth. So even the physical things that I eat comes from his mouth. He told me this is okay, so I eat it. Right now, I'm fasting, so I will not eat. Heavenly food. Through Torah study, we form the deepest possible connection with God. When we comprehend a concept, our intellect encompasses and absorbs it. The study of Torah then affords us opportunity to take in God's wisdom, which is one with God himself. It is written, Zohar 2, 60a, so chapter 2, 60a, the Torah and God are entirely one. I inserted a footnote, Yochanan 1030. I and my father are one. Mashiach is the Basar. He is the Torah made flesh. Then it says, um, by encompassing or by compressing his infinite wisdom into practical and relatable laws of the Torah, God allows us to understand him, so to speak, by applying our minds to his laws. Tanya chapter 4 through 5, another insert from the Or Hakaim. Uh, Or Hakaim here on... Never mind. This is uh, the Medrash Shabbat Shemot 28.1. Well, 
I'll go ahead and read that while I'm here, but uh, I'm just going to quote this real quick and go back to the Or HaKaim because I'm connecting this dot with the spiritual. Midrash Shabbat 28.1 The Torah states, You took gifts of men, and it says, which implies the Torah was given to Moshe as a gift, an acquisition. But if so, could it be taught or could it be thought that Moshe would indeed be liable to pay God for the Torah? And it says to teach otherwise, the verse states gifts, which indicate the Torah was given to Moshe as a gift. So think about Ephesians 2.8. And it says at that time, the ministering angels sought to attack Moshe. HaKadosh Baruch Hu thereupon made Moshe's facial features similar to Abraham. The Holy One, blessed as he, said to the angels, Are you not embarrassed before him? Because, you know, they at one point were fighting to uh, guard Abraham when he was thrown into the furnace by Nimrod says, although Moshe legally acquired the Torah, it was a gift and not a purchase. He did not have to pay for it. God gave him the Torah in this manner in order to instruct him that just as he received the Torah without payment, so he must teach it to others without payment. It could be taught, this is from the Mar Harzu, that Moshe took the Torah for free. It means with without great effort to teach. Otherwise, the Torah states you took means that Moshe did put in great effort. He went 40 days and 40 nights without eating, without sleeping. It could be thought that he was liable to pay for the Torah. Means that one acquires no more Torah than what one pays for it with one's efforts. And since the Torah's measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea, Eov 11.9, i.e. since the Torah is infinite in breadth and depth, one will still not succeed in acquiring very much. To teach otherwise the Torah states gifts, which means when a person puts in efforts to learn Torah, God gives him Torah knowledge as a gift, as God did for Moshe. So there's that. Here's the Or HaKaim that I was talking about. Uh, this is coming from the section of Abraham serving the Malachim, which was really Hashem uh, in Parsha Bayera. And it says, when we say about the angels that they had come to Abraham in the form of men, this means that they had a spiritual type of body that Hashem had created for them by condensing the more non-physical elements of air. Although partially spiritual, this form could nevertheless be called a body when looked at in relation to the actual essence of the angel himself. Footnote, in other words, the bodies, this is Zohar Volume 1, 58a. It says, the bodies in which Hashem cloaked these angels were not regular physical bodies. Nevertheless, the since the essence of an angel is spiritual in comparison to that lofty essence, this less spiritual outer form 
could appropriately be called a body. And this was elucidating, uh, what was that, Philippians, another shameless Paul said, uh, 2-7. On the contrary, he emptied himself and that he took on the form of a slave by becoming like human beings are. And when he appeared as a human being, and then, okay, so by the way, this is Orhakim on Bereshit 18.4. Again, Parshavayera. Yochanan 1.14. The Word became a human being and lived with us, and we saw his Shekinah, the Shekinah of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. There you go. So there's that. So that's how the Torah is one with Hashem. It was compressed into this form, is given a body. Uh, in this case, it was given a form of bread or food, and through Mashiach, it was given the form of flesh, which is his body, which is broken for us, which was actually bread. Then it says, um, the study of Torah then affords us an opportunity to take in God's wisdom, which is one with God himself. By contrast, when we fulfill a mitzvah, the godly energy particular to that mitzvah envelops us, envelops us. Mitzvot are fittingly called, haha, <laughs> pun intended, fittingly called garments, since they clothe our souls in God's light. So, if you think about the garments of light, Adam and Hava were clothed in, they were clothed in mitzvot, and when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they lost their mitzvot. Because now it's like, Hashem, I will choose what I put on. I will choose how I wear this. And you look at what's going on in the world today with how some people dress or lack thereof. And it's just like, ooh, that tree is really wreaking some havoc. <laughs> so grab a hold of the tree of life and put your clothes back on. Then it says, hence the superiority of Torah study over mitzvot. Through mitzvot, we embrace God. We enter God's embrace. Through Torah, we embrace God. The study of Torah is a mitzvah. It therefore enjoys the advantage of all the mitzvot. This is why Torah study is equivalent to all the mitzvot. So how do you fulfill all 613 mitzvot? Study Torah. Keep the Shabbat. Wrap to feeling. Where is Eat Eat? There's all that. Okay. Anyway, um, the advantage of all mitzvot, namely the one that one is en enveloped by God's light when performing the mitzvah of Torah study. In addition, Torah study is unique for the reason mentioned. The Mishnah Pe'ah 1.1 expresses this by stating, Torah study is equal to all the other mitzvot combined. Tanya chapter 5. Dropping a lot of Tanya tonight. Okay. David therefore describes Torah as being in my innards, just as the physical food we ingest becomes our flesh and blood. Oh, get you some. You are what you eat. Thereby nourishing our bodies, so does the Torah we ingest unite with our minds, thereby sustaining our souls with divine wisdom. Rabbi Shniur Zalman of Liadi. Get you some. There's that one. What's this other footnote I got over here? That's why I'm tabbing everything. Oh, breaking of the tablets. 
This is my body which is broken for you. This is the bread, the matzah. Okay. It's interesting because the Torah is unleavened bread. And that's the bread that Mashiach broke because it was Pesach when he broke the bread. Okay, break another tablet. 124 verse 7. Tehillim 124 verse 7. Our soul is like a bird that has escaped from the snare of fowlers. The snare, the snare broke and we escaped. Like a bird, which is Yeshua, trapped in a snare, crucifixion stake, unable to soar heavenward, so is the soul trapped in unhealthy or worrisome thoughts that permeate the mind. These thoughts restrain the soul from climbing the ladder of prayer, from soaring heavenward during prayer. If one is worthy, however, these thoughts can be cleansed during the dream state. The snare is then broken and the bird can soar once more. That's the Rebbe. Okay, uh, it says a drosh right here. Uh, so this is the level drosh of the Pardes. Pashat Remez Drosh Sod uh, says, Under the Greeks, we were forced to choose between two snares, turning our backs on God or being killed. Both are death. That's interesting. These two snares are alluded to in the plural of fowlers. We chose death, allowing our souls to soar like a bird to Shemayim. In this merit, the snare of the Greeks was broken. That's the all sheik. Then it says, breaking the tablets. Okay, this is the crucifixion of Mashiach. Death of the Zodic. says, alternatively, this verse alludes to the breaking of the tablets. This is why I love Jewish writing. Because how do you get breaking of the tablets from Tehillim 124 verse 7? It's talking about a bird in a trap. And you're like, but breaking the tablets though. It says, this alludes to the breaking of the tablets by Moshe, which were a marriage contract. So Mashiach is a marriage contract, but he's also the bridegroom. So if you think about the ketubah is the bridegroom, that's absolutely insane. Cray cray. Says between God and the Jewish people. So how do we get married to Hashem? Get in Mashiach. Being bound to Mashiach is being married to Hashem. That's how we're going to do this now, huh? So had Moshe not broken them, had Mashiach not been crucified, the tablets would have been would have been an indictment for the Jewish people's betrayal of their spouse by worshiping the golden calf. It says, hence, the snare broke and we escaped. So there you go. All right, so footnote. The word for snare, which is pach, which is pay chet, it says it's the equivalent of the value in gematria for tablet, which is luach. And it says, if you multiply by two, because there were two luaks, there are 88. Okay, so luak, luak is 88. And the word for snare is pak, which is pechet, which is 88. And then it says, ma'ate tehila mentions that Hida offered this interpretation just before he died. Perhaps this suggests that just as the breaking of the tablets were meant to protect and benefit Jewish people, Likewise, the death of saintly, of the saintly brings blessing and protection to the Jewish people. That's from Yashmia. Yashmia. Okay, so Mashiach's death, what did that do? Because if 
the death of saints bring blessing and protection for the Jewish people, how much more so for Mashiach Yeshua. Almost done with my sources here, so thank you for standing by. Bear sheet here for Hakaim. Foot washing. Yochanan 13, crossing over with Bereshit 19. So first of all, let's go here. So Abraham said, bring some water. I did not offer to fetch them as much water as they needed. This would be when Kepha was like, wash all of me. And Mashiach's like, no, I only need to wash your feet. You only need some water. You don't need like a whole lot of water. And it says, this too was his custom to say to his guests, because he wanted to show them he was not exerting himself greatly for them so as not to embarrass them. In reality, though, Abraham certainly would fetch as much water as his guests needed. Okay, uh, footnote. Indeed, it is from Abraham's conduct that we learn the ideal of say little and do much. Pirkei Avot 115. Abraham further alluded to the matter that relates specifically to the angels that they should take some water, being an allusion to Torah. So we've been talking about Torah's bread, now we're gonna talk about water. Cause you know, bread and water, basic nourishment, that can get you a long way. This is why the, um, the Moabites and the Ammonites are not allowed to be in the assembly of Hashem because they refused bread and water to the children of Israel when they were passing through their land. So Hashem was like, well, if you're not gonna give me the basic kindness to the world, then you're not going to get to be a part of my people. But we'll take we'll take Ruth, you know, and we'll take um, it was one of the wives of King Shlomo, who was from actually Ammon. I forget where her name is off the top of my head, but Shlomo had a significant wife, and that was the perpetuation of the lineage of Mashiach. So ultimately, Moab and Ammon, the two uh, offsprings from Lot and his two daughters, uh, were used in the lineage of Mashiach. That's why Lot had to be saved. But anyway, uh, it says the allusion to Torah. For example, Yeshayahu 55.1, everyone who is thirsty, go to the water, where, quote-unquote, water is a reference to Torah. And then it says, now, since Torah can be understood on so many levels and includes Peshat, as in Pardes, the Peshat, the simple level, it says that um, the Peshat facets as well as inner mystical facets, Abraham wanted to offer these angels different facets of Torah, each one being appropriate for the different part of these angels. So if you look at Mashiach washing the feet of his Talmudim, he's immersing them into the different facets of Torah. And then this is the same section of commentary that brings down the body of these angels, how they're spiritual and physical. And then the whole thing with Mashiach tying into that. So going on to the next part, it says, specifically, the form of an angel which appears in this world is associated with the foot. The reason for which is known to those who understand the mystical beauty of Torah, which is the Kabbalah, the mystical, Abraham therefore alluded to them that they should take some water, i.e. that they should take some of the Peshat level of Torah and with it wash and purify their feet. And this is like so cool because there are all these different things about 
the Kabbalah and like Zohar and all that kind of stuff, like you got to make sure that you've washed your feet first. You need to have Peshat. You need to know Rashi. You need to know Humash. Like, know the written Torah first before you start getting into all the mystical so that you don't go crazy. So if you think about that, Mashiach was washing the feet of his Talmudim to be like, all right, it's about to get crazy. Let me wash your feet first so you can be well grounded. It's like, okay, cool. But I love this too because there's times where people say, oh, one of the prohibitions of Kabbalah, one of the the standards is that you have to be 40. Well, I love what... uh, Hawk Ayn brings down, he says, well, you know, I'm, uh, I think, he, what is he, like 15 or something? He goes, well, you know, if you add that to, like, my age, if you add my age to the 33 years of Mashiach, I'm well over 40. And I was like, boy, this is why you're Hawkeye. You crazy, for sure. <clears throat> so anyway, uh, just thinking about being 40, if you were... 33 plus whatever your age is because you know Mashiach was 33 you take his years and add them to your years does it equal 40 okay get you some Kabbalah now I don't want to just say that's a, a good license and run out and go do that but again if you have your feet washed by Mashiach i.e. you have 33 years of Mashiach you know Bezrat Hashem if your bar mitzvah and over you're truly grabbing a hold of that I mean, yeah, just saying. I mean, that is a thing. I mean, obviously, we're all on different levels, but it's an interesting insight. So anyway, washing and purifying the feet. Then I want to go over here. It says, Abraham said to them that they should recline beneath the tree. So again, if you're going to be all in the Kabbalah and the mystical, you need to be beneath the tree, which says... Where the tree is also a reference to Torah, since the Torah is called a tree of life. Mishle 3, 18. Okay, we went through all of that. Then it says, Vayikra Rabbah 35, 6. Also brings that down. Well, I asked uh, Hadavar and the Falcon, which is uh, Hasis, if they could drop me some insights on that. So, Hasis and Hadavar, I appreciate y'all both sending me this. So, both of you sharing the same drops at the same time, I appreciate it. So, this is my thank you for sharing your resources. Okay. So, this says, Rabbi Akka ben Elishav said, This expression, decrees, means decrees that bring a person to life of the world to come. And then it quotes Yeshayahu 4.3 that talks about of the remnant that will be in Zion and every remaining one in Yerushalayim. Holy will be said of him, everyone who is inscribed for life in Yerushalayim. As it is a reference to one who engages in Torah study, as it is stated of the Torah, it is a tree of life to those who grasp it. Mishlei 3.18 the Torah will cause a person to be inscribed for life in the world to come. So how are you written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Studying the mitzvot of the Torah. There you go. Since the Torah is called a tree of life for those who grasp it, we can infer that the ones to whom Yeshayahu refers when it states everyone who is inscribed 
are those who engage in Torah study. Accordingly, we see that studying the Torah causes one to be inscribed for life in the world to come, which in turn accounts for the term Hukim, which is the uh, inscriptions and decrees. It says it's used in reference to Torah. Okay, and then uh, the Torah scroll was given from Hashemayim intertwined with a sword. So the sword and the Torah scroll were given from Hashemayim intertwined. And it says, if you observe what is written in this scroll, you will be saved from the sword. Check that out with Bereshit 3.24. And, okay, so God drove out the man and stationed at the east of Gan Eden, the Keravim, and the flaming, or in the flame of the ever-turning sword to guard the way to the tree of life. So if you think about this, that sword and that cherub that guards the entrance of the tree of life is the Torah scroll that descended from Hashemayim. So we can go back to the tree of life, grab a hold of the Torah, if we do the Torah. It says, if you will observe what is written in this scroll, you will be saved from the sword. But if not, the sword will ultimately slay you. So that's pretty cool. So you'll have angelic assistance. So you'll have help from Hashemayim. If you want to purify yourself and walk in Torah, you'll get to the tree of life. You'll be inscribed in the Lamb's Book of Life. Wow. Says the way to the tree of life. The way is direct. Mashiach says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It says this is an allusion to direct Eretz, says, which is the way of the earth, and only afterward does it state the tree of life, this being a reference to the Torah. This is to teach that the direct Eretz preceded the Torah. First you walk in this world because we were kicked out of the garden, but then you return to the tree of life through the Torah, and you get back in the garden. So a Bereta was taught in the name of Rabbi Shimeon ben Yarkai, which is the writer of the Zohar, by the way. The loaf of bread and the rod were given from Hashemayim intertwined. So now we got the sword and the scroll and the loaf of bread and the rod. The Holy One, blessed be he, said to the people of Israel, If you observe the Torah, here's the loaf for eating. But if not, here's the rod with which to be beaten. Where is there an indication of this matter? It is stated, Yeshayahu 1, 19-20. If you are willing and obey, you will eat the goodness of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. This can be understood to mean you will eat carobs. Carobs are these very meager vegetables that poor people eat. And it's because of this, like, poor people's food. This, um, you're barely getting enough nourishment that you're going to be like, oh my gosh. And that's what it says in the Rabbah. When the people of Israel need to eat carobs, carobs, they will make shuva. Okay, so, Baruch Hashem, Tadar Hadavar, and Chasis. I really appreciate y'all. Absolutely insane. The tour is a tree of life. So anyway, back over here to Or Hakaim. Because he said, look at Rabbah, and I just did. He continues, this is why he said the tree, which is the prefix hey, which is the, meaning the one 
that is known for he was not referring to any physical tree but to the tree i.e. the tree of life the Torah so Abraham was like reclined under the tree so receive Peshat all the way into the mystical sod of Torah the Pardes the orchard by sitting under the tree washing your feet and then it says aside from offering the angels Torah on the level of Peshat Abraham told them to take a portion of bread so now we move from water to bread it says alluding to the inner mystical aspect of Torah you know and it was Mashiach washing their feet you know that coincided with him breaking the bread saying this is my body which is given to you so he went all the way from Prashat to the mystical dimension of Torah in many facets it says and nourish their inner angelic essence with it this is why it says Abraham offered them bread so that you may nourish your heart, i.e. your inner essence. Uh, footnotes. The Torah calls out and says, Come and partake of my bread, i.e. my wisdom. Mishle 9.5. We quoted that from Shomer Blue. Then it says, From this we see that the bread is a reference to Torah. Bereshit Rabbah 43.6. Or Hakim assumes here that is specifically a reference to inner mystical facet of Torah. This inner facet of Torah was most fitting for the lofty angelic essence that was within the bodies of these guests. Next footnote, Abraham offered them different aspects of Torah. Peshat was appropriate to purify their bodies, i.e. washing your feet. And an inner mystical aspect of Torah was appropriate to sustain their inner spiritual essence, which is nourish the heart. So there is that. Thank you, Or HaKaim. Bereshit 18.4 took us to a whole new place. And all the way back to Parsha, where the tablets were broken and new tablets were given. Let's see, I have a sticky note on this page for what? I guess we'll just read it. Um, where are we going to land at? However, this approach was not an option for him, blessed is he, so talking about Hashem, based on the teachings of our sages of blessed memory. Hakadosh Baruch Hu cannot bear to see the pain of anyone who is righteous and beloved servant. Is his righteous and beloved servant. He cannot bear to see their pain. Okay. This is Shemot, Parshakatisa being in Bereshit. That's funny. Okay, but Kitisa, which is Shemot, this is 32.10, commentary. So Hashem cannot bear to see the pain of anyone who is his righteous and beloved servant. This is something that we can derive from an event that occurred in days of old. For our sages of blessed memory said, Bereshit Rabbah 32.7, Hashem did not bring the flood until after the passing of the righteous Methuselah. Metut, Metut. Shalach, which is his death shall bring. Okay. So think about this in the con context of Devarim 21, the final verse about the person hung on a tree. Dr. Sakal, among many things he dropped today, he dropped this about the person on a tree. Uh, he says, the king is hanging, but you shall not leave his body on a pole overnight. Rather, you shall bury him on that same day. For hanging a human corpse is a blasphemy of God, and you shall not defile your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Devouring 21.23 
the Peshat. So washing our feet with this verse, it says, Rashi says, For hanging a human corpse is a blasphemy of God. This is a degradation of the divine king whose image man in whose image man is created and the Israelites are God's children. This is comparable to two identical twin brothers. One of them became king while the other was arrested for robbery and hanged. Whoever saw him, the second brother suspended from the gallows would say the king is hanging. So yeah, if you thought being hung on a pole, hung on a tree, alluded to Mashiach, you were correct when you were reading Parsha Kitetze. And then, not only that, but if you look at what Rashi is saying here, that, you know, we're created in the image of Hashem, and we're like Hashem's twin. And so, Hashem being the king and us being the robber, where have we seen this before? Mashiach and Barabbas are presented to the people and they both look alike and the people choose Barabbas and they crucify Mashiach and it's just like wow so Barabbas was really us because we were really the ones who were robbing we were really the ones who got arrested we were really the notorious criminal but we looked like the king so I mean it's a picture inside of a picture right here it's a facet of Torah this is absolutely insane run away close the portal fly away oh my gosh that's ridiculous okay so anyway death of methuselah brought on the flood his death shall bring the flood where we seen that before mashiach his death brings a flood of righteousness instead of flooding us with death he flooded us with life so there's that and it says and not only methuselah but all righteous members of that generation passed away before the flood commenced. As implied, Bereshit 7.22, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died, which may be understood to mean all the righteous people who had a neshama within them had already died before the flood was brought. As stated by Sages of Blessed Memory, Zohar, Volume 1, 206a. Footnote. The plain meaning, Peshat, of this verse, foot washing, every living creature perished in the flood. However, Zohar interprets the term Nishmat Ruach Chaim, the soul or the Neshama of the spirit of life. So the verse refers to the element of the soul called the Neshama, the highest level of the three primary elements of the human soul. The Neshama is rooted in Hashemayim, only the most righteous merit to have it dwell within them. Thus, when the verse mentions all those whose neshama was in their nostrils, it cannot be speaking of those who died in the flood. Rather, it refers to the righteous, means they passed away before the flood. So yeah, I distinctly now that I've read that, remember why I put the footnote or sticky note on this page, because Hashem cannot bear to see the death of his righteous. Then, uh... Going to the next one. Footnote 21 about the Yetzer. Um, give you the context here. So this is Orhakaim Shemot 3411. It says the Yetzerhara would have been removed from the Jews, and as a result, the beasts of the field 
would meekly serve them. All right, let's go back to this. Let me go back to the check out the beginning of this comment. It is also possible that before the incident of the golden calf, Hashem would not have commanded them about the matter stated in this passage. Namely, that if the Jews had not sinned, Hashem would have immediately driven out all the inhabitants of the lands of Canaan before them as soon as they entered the land. There wouldn't have been a need for the wars. There wouldn't have been a need for the deaths of so many people had we not danced around the golden calf. Wow. The nations of Canaan, wow, they would have just been driven out by Hashem, by His Spirit, without having a war and bloodshed and fighting. So we wouldn't have had a battle if we would have just did what Hashem said. Basically is what they're saying. And we also wouldn't have had a Yetzirah. Today, if you hear his voice, today will be the day of salvation. That's what that means. It means you're not going to have to fight a war if you're obedient to Hashem. This is why sweetening the judgment, hastening the coming of Mashiach speedily and soon in our days is such a thing. Because if we make Shuva, we don't have to get into all these nuclear wars. We don't have to get into all the revelation plagues. Those things will only happen if we harden our hearts and be disobedient. Because prophecy, uh, basically, you know, you can read this in the Art Scroll Yermiyahu series, but it talks about how just because a prophecy goes out that's bad, if it's not fulfilled, that doesn't mean it's a false prophet. You can overturn the bad prophecy if you make shuva. Hearkening to the voice of Hashem, being obedient to the mitzvot, being obedient to Mashiach, because the mitzvot, when they become flesh, is Mashiach. Yeshua, that is, not Daffy Duck or Nachman or Schneerson or any of the above. Okay, but anyway, so it says about the Yetzirah, when the Jewish people heard Hashem's voice at Mount Sinai, they were freed from the Yetzirah. There we go. And what does that mean? They reverted to the lofty level of humankind prior to Adam's sin. Why do we have a guitar now? Because we made a golden calf. That's the next comment. I didn't want to bring it up, but I had to. Or Hakim 34, 18-23. Part of that commentary says, You shall observe the festival of Matzah. So it's the Shemot 34:18. The reason this mitzvah is mentioned here is to indicate that the that these seven days of eating only matzot, but no chametz, served as a rectification for the sin of the golden calf. I love Jewish commentary. What does matzah and the golden calf have to do with each other? This is in accordance with that which our sages of blessed memory say. Zohar, volume 1, 226b. Chametz, leaven, represents an alien god. Yeah, he says beyond the scope of this article to really go into that. But... He does say, because I was reading a footnote, and it says, See Zohar there, and in volume 240a, for discussion of this Kabbalistic concept. I'm going to go get the rest of the Zohar now. By abstaining from it on Pesach, the Jewish people would rectify their sin of idol worship. Therefore, although this mitzvah was already stated earlier, Hashem now commanded them again with greater emphasis to observe the matter. Yeah, because renewing the tablets, renewing the covenant... Can't just go back out and eat more hummets. Like, for real. Get rid of this idolatry. So, if you look at that, it was Pesach when Mashiach was um, offered up. And so, the whole thing about, you know, um, 
you want Yeshua or do you want Barabbas? And it's like, you want Barabbas. And it's like, but isn't Yeshua your king? And it's like, we have no king but Caesar. If the people are led into saying they have no king but Caesar, that's an alien God. Someone who's against Hashem. And then you look at all that with the element of the leaven of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the progenitors of the Roman government because they were hired into those positions. You know, they were really taking the Torah and throwing it out and replacing it with ethics of the fathers and with all these different uh, customs, mean hog and getting rid of the written law, getting rid of the spirit of the law. And so no wonder Rome, Christianity, Asaph would teach. Yeah, don't 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 do that Torah stuff. Do this. You know, just love and walk in the new newness of life, the newness of no Torah, the new covenant. So it's like, no, Hashem said the new covenant is get rid of Hamas. And then um, Shaul throws out that we should uh, celebrate the Pesach, getting rid of Hamas. Where does he say that at? First Corinthians 5, 7. Let's look at that. Shameless Paul says tonight, get rid of the old Hamas. So that you can be a new batch of dough. Because in reality, you are unleavened. For our Pesach lamb, the Mashiach, has been sacrificed. So let us celebrate the Seder. Not with leftover chametz, but with the chametz. Not with leftover chametz, which is the chametz of wickedness and evil. But with the, hum, with the matzah of purity and truth. Which again, matzah is the matzah is the same letters for mitzvah if you change the vowel points. So let's celebrate Pesach with the mitzvah with the matzah, and get rid of the old chametz, which is idolatry. There you go. So if Shaul is teaching about Pesach, pretty sure he's not a progenitor of Shmeister. So there's that. Um, Pesach is directly related to the Exodus. As is stated in our verse, the other festivals are likewise given to commemorate the Exodus. With regard to Sukkot, Devarim 16.12, with regard to Shavuot. There you go. Alright. Vayikra 23, by the way, also lines out all the festivals of Hashem. Uh, I saw something here about Teshuva. Oh, here we go. says, the Jewish people... Repented of that sin, Hashem reiterated the matter of the festivals so that they would once again accept upon themselves to observe those specific mitzvot that they had effectively announced through the heretical declaration. For that is one of the requirements of Teshuvah, that one actively demonstrate he's abandoning his sinful ways. Uh, the uh, heretical declaration they're talking about is... Um, what they declared about the golden calf says, these are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Mm -mm -mm. So get rid of the calf. So Moshe did not eat bread or drink water while he was on the mountain 40 days. Mashiach did the same thing out in the wilderness. So he brought the mountain down to the wilderness. That's what Mashiach did. Instead of going up to Ashmai, he went out into the wilderness it says, it is necessary for the Torah to specify that Moshe did not eat bread and did not drink water. Instead of sufficing with saying, simply he did not eat or drink, intention is to imply that it was only physical bread and water Moshe did not eat or drink. 
but he did eat, quote unquote, another sort of food, quote unquote, that is compared to bread. And he did drink, quote unquote, another sort of beverage, quote unquote, that is compared to water. The Torah he learned for those 40 days and 40 nights served as his food and drink, sustaining him in place of physical bread and water. So there's that. Shemot Rabbah 47.7 For the Torah is compared to food. As David Hamelik says in Tehillim 40 verse 9, which we read that, which is, and your Torah is in my innards, indicating that he was physically sustained by Torah. Among foods, Torah is specifically compared to bread. Then it says it's also compared to water, as expounded by the sages Ta'anit 7a. The Gemara cites Yeshayahu 55.1. Again, everyone who is thirsty go to the water. And explains this reference to drinking from the wellsprings of Torah knowledge. See Or HaKaim Bereshit 18.4. We did that. And then it says, had our verse said merely... He did not eat and he did not drink. The implication would have been that Moshe did not partake of any kind of food or drink, physical or spiritual, but survived miraculously without having to resort to any external form of sustenance. Footnote. In reality, he was sustained during those 40 days by Torah that he learned. So, you know, this is a thing when you're doing a fast day especially if it's permitted to study Torah. I encourage us all to really fill up the times that we would normally eat as much as all the rest of the time of our fast doing some serious hardcore Torah study because that'll get us through. Rikashem. All right. So that was that. I have another sticky note for what? What is going on? Uh, or Hakaim Shemot 35.1 says, rectify the wrong in the past. Hashem commanded this. Okay, pick up from the beginning. With this approach, another question is answered. Why does the Torah repeat the command about observing the Shabbat after already issued <clears throat> this command several times? Such as chapter 20, verse 10 and 31, 13 through 17. It says, furthermore, why does it issued this command specifically here just before the command about constructing the Mishkan according to what we said however it fits well here for Hashem was commanding that the Jews is commanding the Jews like Hashem is commanding the Jews to rectify what they did wrong in the past so that they will be worthy of having him dwell in their midst see this is why it just don't work if you're going to say that there's a new covenant but forsake the old covenant and just live by the new testament Hashem is not going to dwell in your midst I mean point blank you'll have a a knowledge of him you'll know about him but you won't have a mishkan so that's kind of a unfortunato so if you know of him why don't you do what he tells us if we know of him why don't we do what he tells us? And that way we can dwell with him and he can dwell with us.
Then it says, as they will be worthy of having him dwell in their midst in the Mishkan, and through carefully observing the mitzvah of Shabbat, which is equivalent to all the mitzvot of the Torah, they will achieve the necessary rectification for the sin of Avodah idolatry, leaven, comets. Uh, happy Pesach, everybody. Okay. The proper observance of Shabbat was a necessary component of constructing the Mishkan, for it produced the atonement that allowed for the Shekinah to rest among them. This was the ultimate purpose of the Mishkan. It says in Shemot 25, 8, They shall make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. Or Le'enayim. Okay. The Shabbat dispenses atonement. Alright, I guess we're going to finish up in Pearl K and call it a night. A really long night. <laughs> so, shattering the tablets. It says, uh, this is Pirkei Rebbe Eliezer, chapter 45, page 84. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to Moshe, Yisrael has forgotten. Yisrael has forgotten. This is why we have to remember. Mashiach says, take heed, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So don't forget the power of and then it says, okay, back to Pearl K. Forgotten the power of my mighty deeds I performed for them in Mitzrayim and at the Sea of Reeds. They made an idol, as it says, Hashem said to Moshe, go down for your people. Not my people, your people have become corrupt. Shemot 32, 7. Go down from your lofty perch. Oh, now he's referring to Moshe as a bird. You have to flee the nest now. So I'm about to take the eggs. That's crazy. That ties into this week's Torah portion. Reply, Moshe, master of the universe, before they send, you call them my people. As it says, I shall take out my legions, my people, the children of Israel. Shemot 7.4 But now that they send, you say, go down for your people have become corrupt. They are your people and your heritage. As it says, they are your people and your heritage. Devarim 9.29 Taking hold of the tablets, Moshe went down the mountain with the letters written on tablets supporting themselves and Moshe. The tablets are the ark. This is why the ark carried those who carried it, because the tablets not only carried themselves, but they carried Moshe. So why Mashiach says, take my yoke upon you, because I'm not carrying only you, I'm not carrying only myself, but I got the yoke too. This is why if you're going by the spirit of the law, then you're able to carry all this stuff because the law is carrying you. Don't be by the letter, but by the Spirit. Because the Spirit is what empowered these letters. That's why Hashem says, not by power, not by might, but by my Spirit. Zechariah 4, 6. Remember this. But anyway, um, when the letters saw, also the letters have vision now. The letters saw the dancing. They saw the drums. They saw the dancing. And the calf. They flew off the tablets. The bird has flown the coop. The chicken has flown the coop. The bird left the nest. And what happened when that happened? Which became too heavy for Moshe to carry, unable to carry himself and the tablets. So is Moshe like flying or something? Because that's what I'm kind of getting a sense of. He's carrying himself. So what's that all about? But it says, unable to carry himself and the tablets, Moshe threw them from his hands, shattering them. As it says, he shattered them at the foot of the mountain. Shemot 3219. Notice, foot of the mountain, the one that nobody could touch. That's where he put it at. 
right there at this little spot between heaven and earth. And it says, Moshe said to Aharon, what have you done to these people? You have exposed them like a shameless woman. Replied Aharon, when I saw what they did to Hur, because they killed him, I became very frightened. Rebbe says, none of the leaders of the tribes took part in the work of the calf, as it says, against the great men of the children of Israel, he did not stretch out his hand. Shemot 2411. And the great surely refers to the leaders. That is why they merited to gaze at the Shekinah, as it says, they saw the glory of God of Israel. So again, the whoever is for Hashem, join me. In other words, if you're going to be for Hashem, you need to be with Moshe, which is Torah. And then it says that um, since the tribe of Levi did not join the evildoers, Moshe was energized and fortified. Taking the calf, he burned it, crushed it to dust, and sprinkled it over the water. Then he made the people drink the contaminated water, and the lips of those who had fervently kissed the calf 